Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Living with Lymphoma podcast series brought to you by the Lymphoma Research Foundation. I'm one of your hosts, Victor Gonzalez. Hello, my name is Izumi Nakano, and I am the co-host of the series. And uh, this is the second podcast uh, in a series devoted to discussing matters that uh, are important to those touched by lymphoma and a lymphoma diagnosis. Uh, last time we discussed coping with lymphoma during the holidays, which we hope everyone found helpful. And we're super excited uh, about this week's topic, which is mindfulness and meditation. Uh, joining us today uh, is leadership coach Jamie Jin, who is an expert on the subject and is kind enough to take time off her busy schedule to join us. And Amy, thanks so much for being here today. How are you? Thank you guys for giving me the chance to be here. I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm well, thank you. <laughs> this is a topic that, you know, we've certainly been getting more and more questions about. Um, I think not just lymphoma patients, but also caregivers and survivors, I think, are hearing about it. You know, maybe they see something on TV or see it on the radio. Um, so we thought it'd be a really good opportunity to, to kind of just give uh, everybody, our audience, really some background um, and how it can really be relevant to someone who's uh, living with lymphoma or who's caregiving for somebody who has or caring for somebody who has lymphoma. And but before we begin, you know, we're wondering if you can just give us a little bit about uh, details about your background, really, what brought to you into this mindfulness world, really? Yeah, sure. So I think mindfulness is for anybody that has a brain or a mind <laughs> or a breath. So any human being and maybe even beyond, who knows? Um, but uh, so that includes me. Yeah. Um, in college, I studied psychology and law, which a lot of people looked at me at the time were like, why those two they don't fit together but i always thought of it as like i'm really curious about what makes us human what makes us think yeah. the way we do what makes us react in the way we do like what is an emotion and so that was psychology that was the internal workings of our brain it was some neuroscience it was some behavioral stuff but like within the self and then law was well how does that get applied or translated when we put a bunch of human beings together mm -hmm. because we I all of a sudden need rules or structures for how to work together and so i was looking at it from that angle so it always made sense to me um, so that was the beginning of a, a lot of this for me from like a young age of curiosity and then I went on and did actually worked in tech for about 12 or 13 years but I was always in roles where I thought that I was basically like an active live researcher mm. on still humans what was making us do the things we do but at work so I was in sales where I got to basically apply some crazy you know, psychology <laughs> right. strategies <laughs> or theories you know live yeah. with my clients and then I did business development, which again was like, you know, taking one step up from just person to person, but organization to organization. Um, mm. At Google is where I really discovered mindfulness. That's mm. where I worked. And Google had all these great resources for teaching it. We had workshops. We had a program there that's since rolled out to the public called Search Inside Yourself. And it was kind of cased as like a leadership program, but leadership mm -hmm. really begins with understanding the self. Right. So yeah. that's where I got most of my training. And then I started teaching workshops like that. And now that I coach, I find that the number one skill that helps anybody that I'm working with, whether it's a leadership uh, objective or life coaching and trying to figure out what you want to do next, is in understanding your own mind. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And it's, uh, I think it's interesting because I, both Izumi and I, both our backgrounds are also in psychology. You know, certainly, obviously, right. the work that we do <laughs> <laughs> relates to that. But um, so much of our, you know, respective programs, I think, really do delve into understanding the self. And it's amazing how we almost have to go to school to do that, right? <laughs> right? You think it's the natural, just instinctive, and, and some of it is, right? But not all of it. And being self-aware and really understanding how we 
perceive the world and relate to others and, and really relate to ourselves is, is such an important skill. Um, yes, right? and you know, we're all born with these minds and they you know, run our lives, but mm-hmm. did we ever get a manual? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, yeah. mean, I just got a Vitamix and I got like a 30-page <laughs> manual for how to operate this right. thing. You know, every appliance that we get has this manual, but we don't have one for our brains. But yeah. in fact, the science is becoming better than ever and the wisdom, the mm-hmm. knowledge about the mind has been studied by anybody who's had one right thousands of years so i think it's fascinating to again coalesce this stuff so that we can start really using it today absolutely you know and i guess you know next step would be well how do we define mindfulness what is it you know in in your opinion how would you describe it i'm going to give you what i think is the simplest definition it is mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment without judgment I like that. That sounds so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, you're just so busy with your day-to-day that it's so hard to just be present in doing whatever it is that you're currently doing because you're thinking, okay, what's the next thing I have to do? That, that's exactly right. I mean, our mind, if you really start to take a step back and start to observe your own mind, right? And that might mean your thoughts, what's happening in there, right? Mm-hmm. You'll find that your mind is often in the past yeah. or in the right. future. Mm-hmm. It's not in the present moment. Yeah, so there are all these it, tendencies. So yeah, yeah it, it is hard, but it's also something that gets easier with practice. So that's right. the good news. Right. And I think that the part that I liked also is the without judgment piece, right? Because I think that piece is like fun, like it's foundational and not to be missed. Um, Some other definitions of of mindfulness will add not just without judgment, but with kindness. So paying Mm -hmm. attention in the present moment with kindness and curiosity. Yeah. Because those would be kind of the antidotes of judgment. And judging is something that, you know, I mean, in our worlds, a lot of people get paid for their judgment, right? Like, what's <laughs> right. taste? Right. What's design? Right. It's judgment, right? Yeah. Um, but when we are in that kind of brain area, that mind area, when we can do so with openness, kindness, curiosity, um, that will help us become much more able to understand what we're seeing mm-hmm. and not to have a difficult experience. Yeah. So I would assume that it takes a lot of practice then to be really conscious of being judgmental or, you know, just trying to be present. Because I mean, that that definitely would be difficult to do um, just naturally as, you know, instinctually. Yeah. So the goal here, I, I just want to be clear too, because I think about this a lot, is not to be, at least for me, not a monk. And enlightenment would be great, but, you know, it's probably not in my lifetime or for me. But, um, but the, um, even the attempt alone, Right. can right. yield the benefit mm-hmm. because when we are trying, at least we are becoming aware. Yeah. And the moment that we become aware, the moment we say, oh, where is my attention? I'm going to try to direct it somewhere else. I'm going to try to direct mm-hmm. it from something I'm future tripping on to this present moment. That is building the muscle. Yeah. So um, I think we need to applaud the attempt and when we feel that it's hard to know that, you know, it's supposed to be hard, right? It's just like if you were going to learn to salsa, mm-hmm. that first class, you're going to feel like oh, I have two left feet. <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> right. what's happening. Um, and that it might feel like that the first time we try to meditate, um, but it will get easier. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking at it from a uh, like a lymphoma patient's perspective, right? I think that when... For many people, when they receive a diagnosis, oftentimes they think about both the past and the future, 
right? And that's where they dwell, whether in the past, oh, you know, how did this happen? You know, what could I have done that could have led to the development of this, uh, you know, this particular disease? Or in the future, what will happen? I'm so worried about myself, my family, you know, my, my job, finances, what have you, right? And I think a lot of the negative emotions come out from these worries and these regrets, right? Or quote unquote, not necessarily regrets, you know, but feelings that they could have done something differently or taken a different path that could have led um, to the development of lymphoma. When, in fact, we don't know what causes lymphoma, right? Um, there's nothing that's been clinically or scientifically proven. You know, there are risk factors. We do know those, but um, oftentimes we get that question, right? And people right. are kind of focusing in on, oh, what did I do? Or what, what, what is in the future, right? When I think there's time that should be carved out for focusing on what's what you know now, right? And where we are now. I think that can be so empowering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I hear that, you know, there's already so much suffering that we have as human beings with or without a diagnosis like that, right? We get our own cases, uh, we stub our toe, um, <laughs> we relive something that we said that was embarrassing, right? Even things like that when we we're in the past. And right. I think my goal has always been is how do we relieve that suffering as much as we can? And when we, when our mind is uncontrollably in the past dwelling on something, we're literally, literally reliving suffering over and over and over again. Yeah. Or if we're in the future, it's like watching a bad movie for like over, like for hours, right? Like you're sitting there in front of the TV <laughs> or at the theater and you're just, you hit play on this movie and you're not getting up and walking away. You're not hitting pause. You're not walking out of the room. And so when we can practice redirecting our attention, just like we're practicing, like I can move my arm up and down, right? Or I can turn the TV off. That's what we're doing in our minds to say, well, I'm going to start paying attention to right now. So that may be, you know, uh, the room that I'm in, or if people are listening to this, right, maybe you're yeah. on your commute or something, but the car that you're in, uh, where you're sitting, your contact, your, your, your butt on your chair, your feet in your socks, and the moment that we take our mind's attention to something that's happening right now, we actually are literally turning the TV off. Yeah, yeah, that, that focus has been redirected, right, to where you are now versus the movie that isn't reality. Yeah. Right. And so it sounds like you can actually do that anywhere, whether you're at work or at home or, or in school? Anywhere. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think that's such a powerful piece to it, right? Because if it's something you can do it anywhere, it's also accessible to everyone, right? Yes. As you said earlier, if you have a mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yes. And in thinking about meditation, Right, and I think sometimes people might get a little bit confused between mindfulness and meditation. How do you, how would you describe the role that meditation plays in the practice of mindfulness? Oh, this is such a good question because I think it's really confusing. I, I mean, when I first started learning this, I was really confused. Mm -hmm. There all these terms and. It's very meta. I felt like, are you asking me to be Neo from the Matrix? Like, it's just like <laughs> the spoon isn't really there. It's just confusing. Right. Um, right. But I think the best way to describe it is mindfulness is a, the umbrella term. It's the larger term up mm -hmm. and above. And it's paying attention, right? And um, meditation is a technique that you can use to become more mindful. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of okay. like if I was going to say like, you know, I want to be strong and agile and fast or something like that, or let's say something like that, yeah. then I would go to the gym and, and I would do like leg reps. And that would be one technique 
to gain that that overarching sort of state of being yeah. strong. So you can kind of think about it like that. And in fact, the gym is and muscles are such a good analogy to understand mindfulness um, because of what you're actually training. Yeah, and it takes practice. Exactly. Build out. Yeah. So meditation is, you know, so mindfulness can be practiced, like we said, in the moment, anytime you can be in the line at the grocery store and I'll, and just for that moment, realize that, oh, you know what, what's happening right now, non-judgmentally, right? You can just snap into it. You can have literally a moment, a nanosecond of it. Right. And the meditation right. is actually like going to the gym, like, okay, I'm going to sit down on a cushion mm-hmm. or on a chair and I'm going to spend one minute, five 10 45 actually directing my attention towards something actually doing reps as if i'm at the gym with a dumbbell so you kind of need to set yourself up for for doing meditation then it's it's not as if you can necessarily be somewhere and then stop and then meditate for a while or what does that look like yeah so i don't think you can meditate when you're driving for example right Right? that would i wouldn't recommend that um but you can meditate if you're like let's say sitting on a bus or a subway Mm -hmm. and commuting somewhere and you can absolutely meditate if you're waiting at the doctor's office Mm -hmm. um or if you are you know trying to fall asleep which is so interesting because i think a lot of people assume that the most appropriate setting for meditation is a completely quiet setting, right? Where there's really devoid of anything that would be distracting. Um, but a lot of the examples you described, like the subway and the bus or even doctor's office, are anything but that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. yes. Right. Yeah. So the I, I love that you brought this up because the quiet can help you with focus. Mm-hmm. Right, because you're less distracted. But actually, right. some of my favorite meditations. I mean, I live in New York City. Okay, this city is loud and oh, yes. crazy. Okay, <laughs> and things are always happening. So it's hard to get quiet, even in my apartment. Um, so sometimes I use meditation as a form of listening. And what I'll do mm-hmm. in that technique is actually, in, when I'm paying attention to the present moment, I pay attention to the sounds that I hear. Mm. And that is what I'm using to anchor on. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, when I meditate in the, in those situations. Yeah. yeah. There are, I, I mean, I asked a Buddhist monk once in Thailand, right? I was like, how many types of meditation do you guys, do, do they teach you? And he paused for a while and he said to me very calmly, 40,000. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was my reaction. How, how many? Like, how can you even keep track? Yeah. But the point in bringing that up now is that there are so many different techniques and types of meditation out there. And for anybody listening, it's really all about finding the one that works for you Mm -hmm. because your mind is not really like anyone else's. It's going to be unique and the context and what you need it for, what time of day it might be, how much time you might have, what time of year, season, who knows what the variables are. Um, I I think I found the greatest success when I've been able to find different techniques and then pull one in that seems to fit for me in that moment and sometimes it is just being on the subway yeah. and listening yeah no it's, that's great and that, that's helpful to just to learn about the diversity of opportunities that exist just in the context of meditation are there more popular uh, techniques of meditation out there that people tend to use yes so I um most of the ones I think you'll find, let's say you go to a meditation class for the first time or you open a meditation app, is one mm-hmm. where uh, you're being asked to focus on the breath. Okay. So that's yeah. using the breath as an anchor. And we can talk a little bit about how do you meditate in a moment, but uh, that will be very common. You'll see other ones like body scans. Mm. Where yeah, um, you might have a guided meditation, right? By the way, apps that are great for this, Headspace, Calm, 
insight timer. I believe all of these have free kind of guided meditations I can take you through. I think Headspace still has their 10 days, 10 minutes a day uh, class, which is how I started to meditate. Um, mm-hmm. So so yeah, so you can do a body scan that guides you through. You can um, anchor on a mantra, which is a sound, okay. right? And if you've ever gone right. to yoga class and you heard OM, that would be a mantra. <laughs> um, you can have a walking meditation where you're paying attention to the sensations of walking so your feet hitting the ground you can mm-hmm. have um you can have so many different yeah. ones yeah right yeah have, have you found that um there's any any one of those in particular that people tend to gravitate towards more so than others i find that when i am coaching people who are very busy <laughs> and their minds are naturally active that um, it's hard for them to sit and just try to focus on the breath it will drive them crazy yeah. and especially right. when I've had clients who have a lot of anxiety you yeah. know, that could be the last thing that you want to do yeah. so um, walking meditations are great for that um, there is a technique called the Ziva technique Z-I-V-A that can be really good um, I think that one is about kind of listening to the sensations or the sounds that are around you um, another one that's great is uh, you know, very simple is, you know, five, four, three, two, one, meaning five, what are five things you can see? So you don't even have to close your eyes, but you're paying attention to that present moment and you're not judging the things you see, right? Four, what are the four things that you can hear? To name four things you can hear, like count them, right? Silently. Um, three, what are the three things you can smell? Maybe, maybe you get to two, but yeah. <laughs> two, what are the two things that you can feel? Maybe mm. something touching your skin or the seat underneath you. And one, what is the one thing maybe you can taste? Maybe there's something in your mouth, maybe not. But you can, it's activating your senses to pay attention in the present moment. And that will take you maybe what, a minute or so? Right. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and your descriptions right now and what you just said earlier about busy people kind of made me think of what would you say to somebody who would tell you, you know, all this sounds great, but I just don't really believe in meditation. I don't think it's really right for me. Um, and I think we come across these people, right, just because, you know, what, maybe they are too busy or they, they feel like they're a certain personality type. Um, but what, what would you say in those situations? Yeah, I hear that a lot, especially, <laughs> uh, you know, other versions of that are like, I can't not have thoughts, right? Like, <laughs> right. like or, or I can't sit there or, you know, every time I try, I fall asleep. Mm. Like that, that, yeah. You know, we're tired, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> we're all yeah. sleep deprived. Um, so I hear a lot of that. And I do think it's, you know, yeah, maybe there's some truth that this thing isn't for you. You know, pizza isn't for everybody. Yeah. Okay. A lot of us like it, but it's not for everybody. Um, But I do think that if you're curious about it, it's really, again, trying to find the technique that's right for you. And maybe it is that you're doing it for a minute and lessening the kind of definition or the requirements you think that you have to get to, to do this thing, quote unquote, correctly. And that's one thing that I think we're going to do like an exercise at the end Mm -hmm. of this. I want to debrief that kind of that we, you know, all of us, many of us are like achievement oriented and am I doing it right? Right. And while that's important because there is a technique, um, I think it is being kind to yourself. That's part of this practice too, right? Right. And realizing that you're going to start where you are. Again, if you're going to, if this were dancing, you're not going to be go on, you know, America's Next. What is the dance show? Um, let's see, what is that? Dancing with the Stars. Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. yeah the you're not going to go on that tomorrow. <laughs> it's not like the first time you try to meditate, you're going to be whizzing around the right. stage. And so starting exactly where you are and just seeing if there's progress or noticing something different mm-hmm. every day. Okay. Um, 
for the folks who have really have a hard time uh, just sitting down with anxiety, yes, I would definitely go with some of the more physical ones like a walking meditation or putting on a guided meditation yeah. where somebody's talking you through it. Right. That is so helpful. I use that a lot too when I'm just feeling frazzled. Um, and the feeling tired one is really good. So yeah. even if you get in there and let's say you fall asleep after the first two minutes, I'm proud of you. I am super <laughs> proud of you that you went in there and you did it for two yeah, minutes. Absolutely. And sometimes the body needs to sleep. But what I would say to you is that this is going to be really good for you because think about conditioning, right? If every time in the past, the only time that you kind of sat still and closed your eyes was when you were ready to sleep, your body's been trained that way, right? right. So your body That's might be true. thinking, oh, like Amy just wants to go to sleep right now. I'm going to go to sleep, right? <laughs> yeah. So when you sit, when you try that again day after day, your body starts to say, oh, wait, okay, just because we're sitting still and closing our eyes, it doesn't mean it's time for sleep. Your body will learn. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. What about someone who maybe is feeling really depressed? Is there a certain technique or, or style of meditation that would be better for, for someone in that situation? That's a great question. So I, I do want to say that some of the studies and the science around meditation, um, a lot of them have been done on how do they affect depression. And so one right. of the benefits of meditation is that it really helps with depression. Um, the I don't I actually don't have like the more scientific answer as to which exact techniques they used. There is one mm -hmm. I want to make a kind of available to everyone here, which is called mindfulness based stress reduction. Okay. So it's shortened as MBSR, and it was developed by this guy named John Kabat-Zinn, who's kind of considered to be the father of mindfulness, and he's got a research facility in Massachusetts. I think it's the University of Massachusetts. Um, but a lot of that is based on, again, attuning to, uh, attuning to where your attention is and bringing that mm -hmm. back to something that you have decided to anchor on, such as your breath. Because right. I, I'm not an expert on depression, but what I have experienced in my own life and just my kind of, I don't know, uh, sideline understanding of, of, of the condition is that we can get caught in this downward spiral. And there's right. a lot going on mm -hmm. there, right? Um, but, but a lot of it is the thoughts, yeah. right? Or the, uh, the feelings that come along with it. Mm -hmm. So when we practice mindfulness, it is an amazing thing because we're make, turning our attention to focusing on something and therefore we are observing our mind, we are observing our thoughts. And there is a truth underneath there that becomes more and more clear to us the more we sit mm -hmm. in this place and that truth is you are not your thoughts. Yeah. You, like you Victor, you Izumi, you are this being and you have thoughts and you have emotions but you are not them. You are something else. And the proof of that is because you can observe your thoughts and because they can come yeah. and go, that they are not you. And so when we do that, when we allow the brain to have that um, muscle, um, when we get into a place that is depressing, we can find at least just a smidgen of separation between our thoughts and us. And that separation is, is freedom. Yeah. One of my favorite right. quotes I is is by, I, I have to read you this quote, is by um, Vic, Victor Frankl, who is a survivor from the Holocaust. Mm, he yeah. was- Man's Search for Meaning. Yes, his book. yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a great book. Amazing book, right? Um, he was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, right. I believe. And his quote is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in that 
response lies our growth and our freedom. That's so powerful. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, when I get into a place that's hard, I think, Mm -hmm. I think about that and I think about my free will, right? Right. No matter what, what's going on, I, I have free will and that free will at the core nugget is what I choose to pay attention to and how I choose to react. And forget that. Yeah. You often forget that you do have free will and that you have a choice. And especially, you know, people that contact our helpline and they are just feeling like they're stuck uh, with their diagnosis and there's no hope and there's nothing that they can do. I mean, that, that feeling of helplessness um, is, you know, it it can leave you frozen and with no choice. But if you sit and really think about it and really use that meditation and mindfulness, then you realize you do have some choices, some control over what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So when, I mean, this is the, the fact that this could potentially help people on the helpline is amazing. I mean, I just have an idea for, you know, if you do come to a time where that helplessness really strikes you hard, mm-hmm. the first thing that I would do is take a deep breath because by breathing, we can actually activate a part of our body's like relaxation response yeah. and we can give ourselves just that tiny bit of space and pause in a physical right. way that we need, right? It's like turning off the TV, right? Let's just take a breath. And then the next question would be, how do I want to respond to this? How do I want to react to this? And what happens when we meditate and we practice this as a technique is we're just able to get to that question and realize that we've you know, been kind of hijacked by this stress yeah. response or this fear. So we just realize that we've been hijacked sooner. So maybe like, you know, you get helpless and you get scared and you're on the train and you're freaking out. But the moment that you become aware, take that breath yeah. and then ask yourself, how do I choose to react? Yeah, I think that's so powerful you know, for, for many people who you know, are dealing with you know, lymphoma diagnosis or even caregivers or even survivors, right? Who right. may be a few years out and are thinking back about what the experience was like for them and maybe there is some ongoing depression for that or there's anxiety about thinking about a, a relapse for example right and and kind of being aware of how they're feeling at that moment and creating that bit of a separation you know that we talked about i think has be so powerful for them yeah yeah the the other thing that and i'm thinking about some of my own experiences where i've just been like hopeless or mm-hmm. really scared or angry yeah right consumed right. by something um The other thing that mindfulness has really helped me realize is that the only thing that is completely true about life and our thoughts and our brains is that everything is constantly changing. Yeah. Constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And in Buddhism, the term for this is ephemerality. Everything is ephemeral. Nothing is permanent. Right. And what we practice when we meditate in that way is something called equanimity, which means that because we are in touch with the wisdom that everything is going to change all the time anyway, like everything, every emotion is constantly arising and then passing away. Like even if I feel totally helpless in this one moment, it might be coming on and building and getting stronger, but at some point it's going to go down a little bit. It's going to, it's going to go away. It's going to start leaving and everything does that. Then what I can do is stay back just a little bit, try to observe it, and even if it's really hard in that moment, know that that moment is going to pass. Yeah. And it does. And it does. And it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we've all had experiences like that. Right. You know? you know, and I would imagine that people who are listening are wondering, how do I find someone like you, Amy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you have any suggestions for where people can go or, or what people should ask their doctors maybe or a social yeah. worker? Yeah, so I I, don't, I think, you know, Victor and I were kind of chatting before this and saying that it doesn't seem like doctors are in a good place to say, like, here's what you can do mindfulness-related kind of stuff. Um, so I think some other resources might be helpful. Um, there are, the good news is, is that the learning mindfulness today is easier than ever ever right think about like i don't know our parents generation or something like that in the you know 50s 60s 70s you had like you had to go to india <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. right? you had to go to an you ashram to make there was a real no... effort to yeah. get out there and yeah there's no you know internet right mm-hmm. um but now there are so many online courses you know i did a quick search before i got here udemy has one uh there's a there's a website called mindful.org uh again the apps mm-hmm. i think are incredible especially yeah. as an introduction um john kabat zinn is again a great resource and he's got some great books um and then i mean in new york city and and you know maybe in your own town you know maybe googling are there some centers Mm -hmm. um that help teach this or incorporate this your local yoga studio might have a class on mindfulness right in new york we have like the shambhala center we have even a studio it's like a yoga studio but only teaches mindfulness it's called mindful Mm -hmm. without the vowels founded by a guy named lodro rinsler who's written some books too. Um, I think there are more resources now than ever. I would really encourage the kind of Googling of it and, and downloading an app. I think that's the most immediate yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think we are starting to see some programs being implemented at some of the institutions, you know, where, where patients might be treated at, where they're seeing for their care. Um, I think a big part is, is asking, right? And and I think, right. assuming you mentioned, you know, speaking with a social worker, you know, if, if um, mm-hmm. their provider doesn't really know. And oftentimes they exist, but maybe they're not very widely promoted, right? right. Um, but I think that it's becoming more and more common to see some of these programs. Um, and, you know, these other things, great things that you mentioned can complement that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily you have to go to one source in particular. Yes, right? yes. And you mentioned yoga, and I would imagine that meeting in a group of people um, and doing that type of meditation uh, must be so helpful just to kind of feel like, you're not alone and that others, you know, find this helpful. And even if they are dealing with something a little different uh, than what you're dealing with, um, just that feeling of unity together, um, I would imagine would be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I think you're talking about like the power of community and sharing that experience. Right. I think that can be so healing Mm -hmm. Um, and it can it can put an end to some of the shame that we all feel. It can keep us trapped and isolated. Um, I also, you know, I meditate by myself and then I also go to like group meditations when I can, or even I sign up for classes because I like to renew and I like to ask teachers questions because you know, your mind is a crazy place. (laughs) No matter how long you keep at this. Um, And it is a very different feeling when you're sitting in a room of people all meditating. Something different happens in that room. So yeah, Azumi, you're spot on. Yeah. And I think that kind of brings to mind, or you're kind of touching upon my next question is that for someone who's interested in meditating, who's doing it, at what point do you see them noticing a difference, right? And I'm guessing that's very individual. Some things can be very immediate, you know, like how you were just saying. Um, but can that be something that can take time for other individuals? Yeah, I love this question. So um, 
I do think it can be immediate. I think Ellen DeGeneres actually has a like a soundbite about this where she says, <laughs> you know, meditating is kind of like, you know, when you're on your computer and it like freezes and you get that like blue screen of death, oh, no. right? right? Or the <laughs> spinning <laughs> wheel and it's like all yeah. frazzled and stuff. And then what do you do? You like restart your computer, right? Yeah. And then you turn it back on. It seems like things are pretty okay, <laughs> right? So meditation can kind of be like that. Right? It can right. be immediate, like in that moment, let's say you're sitting in traffic or something just crazy happened, you taking that moment for yourself mm-hmm. can feel like a little bit of a restart, okay? So you might right. be able to feel that right away. But in terms of how long it takes to notice and measure a change in your brain, yeah. well, we haven't gotten some of this neuroscience yet, I wanna talk about th- oh, that yeah. too. Um, <laughs> but the programs out there are seeing that if you meditate for about 27 minutes, I think is what it is, a day, for eight weeks that you will literally have increased gray matter. So your brain, oh. the size of some of the parts of your brain will change. Right. Yeah. Oh, and that, I mean, weird. eight weeks, that's not, that's short. That is short. It's very short. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very quick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking about two months basically. Yeah. So, wow. That's so interesting. Well, I, you, you you just piqued my interest. So talk to me about some, or talk to us a little bit more about that biochemistry piece. Okay, you know, like yes. How that, how that works <laughs> for those of us who are into more of the science side of, right. <laughs> uh, of the topic. You know, like what can you share with us in terms of, of that perspective? Okay, I love this stuff. So um, the I think the like coolest finding of recent science is neuroplasticity. Yeah. So that's the idea that you can literally change the structure and the function of your brain just by teaching it to do Which different things, asking to it to do different things. Yeah. yeah. And you think about it, it's just like a muscle, right? right? Like yeah. you have this bicep and like, you know, if you do a bunch of reps with it, it's going to get bigger. And if you do other things with it, like yoga, it's going to get longer. It's going to mm-hmm. perform the task you want it to perform. And that's what our brains do. So when we meditate, what we see is that the hippocampus can get bigger mm-hmm. and the hippocampus is an area that's as- associated with learning memory and mm-hmm. emotion regulation so imagine that's that as like you yeah. know if you are feeling the emotion of fear or sadness or anger right we all have the ability to regulate our emotions and so that ability can get stronger when you meditate because the function, the piece of your brain that's part of it is getting bigger. There are more neurons there. There's more gray matter. Um, Just as a contrast, uh, scientifically, the hippocampus is a place that tends to be smaller with people who do have PTSD and depression. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting relationship. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I have two more here for you. Actually, three more here for you. Okay. So there's another part of the brain, which is above your ear here, uh, called the temporal parietal junction. TPJ sometimes for short. (laughs) This gets stronger when you meditate and it's responsible for perspective taking. So like Uh, what is Victor seeing and feeling right now as he's sitting across from me, right? Um, It's responsible for empathy and compassion. And these, I mean, for caregivers, you know, for yourself, giving yourself some compassion um, can be so key, right? In helping you get through anything. Mm-hmm. Um, another part of the brain that changes when you meditate is the amygdala. So this is an older part of the brain, and it's correlated with um, your kind of fight or, fight or flight center, and um, your, it's also responsible for your emotions and, um, and stress. Yeah. So it gets smaller. It's like one of the parts of the brain that gets smaller when you meditate. So uh, there's less stress reported when you have a smaller amygdala. 
Imagine that feeling that's less stress, right? Less oh, fear. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like how, li- how liberating would that be for everyone, really? Right. Yeah. How many times have we felt we've been in stressful situations and we just wanted it gone, right? Yes. And to be able to, you know, put something into practice that could potentially lead to that, I think is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, stress drives our lives. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. One more. Yeah. It's the anterior cingulate cortex. And it is located deep inside your forehead. It's behind your frontal lobe. And this is associated with self-regulation, uh, which means the ability to purposefully direct attention and behavior. So literally mm. what you're trying to do in meditation, right? right. Purposely pay attention. Um, it suppresses inappropriate, quote unquote, knee-jerk responses and mm. the ability to switch strategies flexibly. Right. So the idea that like maybe something happened and your default response, your knee jerk reaction is to, I don't know, freak out or dance right. in the street or whatever. Right. <laughs> but that giving you that choice and that response. So this gets stronger when we meditate. It's funny because as as children, we think are, you know, we're developing their brains and they're they're growing. But then you think as adults, you know, for some reason, even though we know that we're still developing and growing and we can always learn, we don't realize that we could still develop and grow our brain as well and what an impact that has on how we see things and and how we feel about things so that that's amazing yeah i mean it's a superpower you know i i I hear like dan harris is this journalist and he is such a big proponent of meditation and what he says is listen like you know 40 50 years ago we were all smoking cigarettes in hospitals you know we just that's what we did and if you said i'm going for a run people would look at you and say from what (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that was not part of our health and right, hygiene. Right, yeah. And he says that in a couple of years, everybody's going to be meditating. It is going to be just like brushing your teeth. It's going to be just as fundamental to being a human being as uh, breathing. Yeah. Um, and we're just not there yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. think about how many people it's something that's still such a foreign concept to them. Right. And to think that at some point it could be an integral part of who they are and, and their daily t- activities, you know, I think is amazing to think right just and seeing hearing and seeing all these benefits you know from what you shared i think you know it, it's going to be a great step forward and be able to manage some of those emotions and, and thoughts that you know could really hinder the way that we look at life and and at least keeping it from in a negative perspective right and, and breaking free from that and just seeing that there's so much more out there you know i have um i have three kids myself and i would imagine that meditation and mindfulness is probably pretty different for them versus for adults. Um, and then especially having to deal with a diagnosis of cancer or lymphoma, um, what would you teach to them versus an adult? So I looked up a little bit of this because I'm not an expert on kids, but I think I found some stuff that's going to be really helpful. Um, good news is, is that meditation is super helpful for kids, right? <laughs> um, imagine the ability to, um, choose their reaction or just know what they're being attentive to or understanding their emotions, self-control. Kids have stress too, a lot of stress. Actually, kids are really scared all the time, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that they don't know and can hurt them. And as parents, it's our job to protect them. Um, So we're talking about the emotion of fear and stress. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are two things that I found that I felt like were helpful techniques for kids. And one is called the balloon. 
<laughs> so you ask your kids, you know, you're sitting there and you ask your kids to imagine that uh, there is there's a big balloon and it's it's in it's inside of them, right? Uh, maybe that's scary. Maybe I'm describing this incorrectly because I don't have children. <laughs> so you might have to edit this for your child. But the idea that is, is that there's a balloon and when you breathe in, you're filling the balloon up. And then when you breathe out, you're, you're letting the air out of the balloon. And that's, that's all you're doing. You're just paying attention to that balloon. Yeah. So the balloon is a metaphor for your breath. Yeah. Right. That could be great for adults too, but right. for kids it's easier to imagine. They're focus, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you can even say like when you're breathing out to like make the sounds of the balloon hissing out of air like like that. Yeah. And you just get your kids into this, you know, practicing this breathing and focusing on their breathing for a little bit. You could even say it's a little bit like um, follow the leader where like your breath is the leader and your mind is what's following it. Yeah. That could be kind of cool, right? Yeah. And, um, and the last thing that works for kids and um, adults alone is the body scan. So just, you know, sitting there and being like, okay, like now, you know, put your attention on, you know, your left foot, right? You can even do the, what is it, the 10 little piggies or whatever, yeah. right? Like little toes. <laughs> and you just go one by one, little toe, fourth big toe, yeah. middle big toe, and you go one by one. It can help them fall asleep. And you can do the whole body or something like that. Um, right. And that that can be again. Yeah. You're just training the attention and um, paying attention. Yeah, I think I think those are really great suggestions. And we do receive calls from um, people who've been diagnosed with lymphoma, and they haven't shared the news with their children yet. For example, because they feel like it would cause a lot of stress on them, um, and they don't know how they'll be able to react to the news, and just kind of have that as part of their toolbox when they do share the news. Right. I think is such a great. Um, great great advice right to be able to give to them and and hopefully provide some relief right from that some of that stress for not just the children right but the family as a whole wow that is so i just imagining that situation must Mm -hmm. be so tough um maybe one more thing i can offer is um when when we share something like that there's so much emotion yeah that is behind that and we'll come to that and one thing we can do with the techniques of mindfulness is we can pay attention to those emotions. Mm-hmm. We can say, you know what? Um, sadness is here. Sadness is here. And what is, what, where is it? What does it feel like? And, not, and teaching our kids it's okay to have feelings. Yeah. It's okay to feel sad. Right. And, yeah. um, and it might be, you know, where do you feel sad? You know, and they may say, I, I feel it here in my chest or point point to where it is. Yes. And what does it feel like? Is it, and you're again, you're observing, right? So you're saying, is it um, steady or jumpy? Is it cool? Is it warm? Is it fast or slow? Is there a color? Is there a smell or a sound? And you're just spending time with that emotion and letting it be with you um, and then seeing what comes next. Right, yeah. yeah. And I think that's beautiful. I think in our culture, we spend so much time in trying to squash the emotion or hiding it, ignoring it. And it, in fact, just keeps hanging on, right? Versus when you're able to address it kind of head on and, like you said, experiencing it and then seeing what comes next. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that technique must, I mean, it seems like it would definitely work well for adults as well, just oh. to kind of. Yeah. Get back in touch. <laughs> the place where I learned that technique, I think I think this is really interesting, especially as we're talking about kids and mm. I think about little boys. I learned that in a, a men's coaching group. Oh, interesting. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because it was a place where, I mean, 
again, I don't want to be too general, but I don't think a lot of little boys in this country are taught to feel their emotions and particular ones, maybe anger or something, Mm -hmm. but definitely not fear. Right. Not sadness sadness is tough. Right. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we need these tools. We Mm -hmm. all have emotions, especially guilt or shame or embarrassment. There's so many of these other ones that we don't talk about. Like, thank God for Brene Brown. Like that's (laughs) the woman I always turn to when I think about these difficult emotions. But you know, we, we need techniques for how to process them and Absolutely. how to be with them, not to push them away or avoid them yeah. and go through them. Right. Yeah. And this brings to mind a time that I spoke to a, a caregiver who uh, whose husband was diagnosed with lymphoma and she said he was very stoic. He didn't want to talk about it. It was clear that something was off, right? That he was different. He was very clearly dealing with uh, an emotional response that he was just keeping inside. And she was struggling over, you know, how to process that and care for him, right? So in addition to encouraging uh, her to talk to him, you know, these are great suggestions that I I would definitely share with her as well. Because, uh, you know, I think that anything that could potentially support uh, different ways of getting that emotion out and yeah. processing it because that's the thing right is being able to process that and, and get some meaning out of it why am I feeling this way it's okay to feel this way what does this really relate to and then kind of move past that right? yeah I, I don't know if I've read science around this but in my personal experience uh, my meditation practice has helped me be stronger yeah emotionally and mentally and what I mean by that is resilient And so when I do feel something very sad or I'm with somebody who's, you know, I had a friend recently whose mom passed pretty suddenly from brain cancer and just being able to sit with her while she's having every emotion under the sun, you know, but very, very sad and grief and being with that and having the empathy and just experiencing it together. Um, and you don't have to have the answers. Yeah. You don't have to make it better. Right. You, you may not ever be able to, yeah. but being with that person and connecting with them and showing them compassion and love in that way can be at least emotionally healing. Yeah. So it's being present and being present with them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Would you mind leading us in an exercise? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, could we kind of do a little bit of talking about like what's actually happening, like the technique? I I would want to do a little bit more about the technique before we do that. Okay. So um, the reason I say it's like great to compare meditation's technique to going to the gym is because like if you are trying to make your bicep bigger, right? What you're doing at the gym is you're probably taking a dumbbell and you're doing reps, right? You don't just do one. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you do, you know, 10 and then you rest and you do another set. Right. And every time you lift that dumbbell up, that action is actually, that's the time that the bicep is getting stronger. Right. When you put right. it down, you know, maybe you're doing another muscle, but you're training the bicep. So I want, when I lead this meditation, I want you to just be cognizant of that. And this is what I wish that I was told when I was learning to meditate that I just feel like nobody really taught me. Um, but what we're doing is we're asking your brain to pay attention to something. Okay. And it can be anything in this two minute one, I'm going to use your breath because it's always there. Like if you're alive, you have a breath. Right. So that's what makes it easy. (laughs) Um, But again, we said earlier, it could be, you know, a part of your body, a sensation in your foot or a sound or, you know, stuff like that. Okay. So we choose an anchor, this case, the breath. What we're going to do is we're going to ask your attention to go entirely to your breath. So meaning 
see if you can like drop whatever is happening right and just to focus on that breath and i'll guide you through that and then what will inevitably happen because we have these minds these human minds is that your attention will drift something else will enter the picture right your grocery <laughs> list or an itch right or i mean a sound like who yeah. knows right and that's okay that please be don't be upset about that you can even welcome it because what that distraction allows you to do is the rep and the rep is bringing your attention back that is what makes your mm, brain stronger okay. does that make sense yes yeah so That's the bicep in this case is your ability to focus and sustain that focus on something on your your attention on something that you've chosen to attend to mm -hmm. okay so use that distraction to get stronger yes basically. so it's almost <laughs> as if like if you if you were able to redirect your attention back to the breath like you could be like oh yeah one like that's a wrap right <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to like get us into any of our achievement orient like i have some people that i teach this soon they're like i did 10 <laughs> that's, that's not quite the point so yeah. you know let that go but but yeah you can do kind of a little cheer to be like oh you know what i noticed i noticed that my attention drifted that is exactly what we're talking about when you're in that grocery store or you know you have some crazy news and you get on that hijacked by that train that noticing is a huge win so that first and foremost is like yes and then you say okay what was i doing oh yeah i was focusing on my breath and you come back and that's the rep okay Got it. okay so that's what we're gonna do in these two minutes i'm gonna look at the a timer so i don't i tend to lose track of time when i do these things <laughs> so the first thing i want everyone to do is just take a deep breath in clearing breath in into your belly if you can and exhale through your mouth. <sighs> and hopefully that felt good. So we're going to take one more. And when you exhale this time, just let everything that you were just thinking about go. <sighs> now see if you can find your thoughts, find your mind. And we can even take kind of like an eraser and just erase what's in there right now as if you just imagine like a little eraser going across the inside of your mind now see if you can notice that you're hearing right now you're probably hearing my voice and see if you can hear anything else in the room or the space that you're in, just attuning to where you are right now. And then I want you to notice where you are being supported by what you're sitting or lying on or standing on, where your body, your butt or your feet meets the floor or the chair just that place that you're being held up that there's contact there you might even take that attention to your toes maybe they're in your socks and now i want you to take your attention and see if you can find your breath that was two minutes. See if you can find your breath and just notice where you feel it the strongest. Where is that? 
Is it in your chest? Is it in your nostrils? Is it in your belly? And it's as if you're meeting your breath for the very first time. What do you observe or notice about it? Is it choppy? Is it fluid? Is it warm? Cool? Just ask yourself, what do you notice about your breath? And if your attention has wandered, all you have to do is come back, find your breath again. And notice even if you are wondering if you're doing this right or if this feels very weird to you. It's okay. Those thoughts are there. And then just ask your brain to reconnect and come back to your breath. Let's see if you can take one inhale in, consciously inhale in, and then let it go, exhale. And then when you're ready, open your eyes if you've closed them and come back to the room that you're in. And that's it. That's amazing. <laughs> how, how was that? How is that? You almost forget where you are and what you're doing. And that just is such an amazing feeling. It really is to not think about all the things that you were worried about or, you know, the things like you said, you had like my grocery list later and things like that. Just be able to focus on a part of me that is always with me, but I'm not always conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I, I've found that when I do that, I'm finding a sanctuary inside of me that is right. there always, always. It's a safe place. It's a place where I can be and I can get to it even if I'm in the craziest possible environment. Yeah. And that is such a um, soothing and confidence building thing to know that it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. To have somebody who's living with lymphoma or you know in treatment and have these different emotions and thoughts and and having to exercise like this it gives them that moment of quiet i think is just so invaluable really and see that there's a possibility of living a life without worry while you're going through all that right um and i think that's just so powerful so yeah did you guys find it difficult or tricky at some points yeah there were moments there, there, <laughs> there were moments where i kind of had to bring myself back and yeah I could catch uh, myself kind of thinking of something else or right and I thought of you the rep part I didn't count yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, I had different ones but I did you know bring it back and saw myself of it's okay you know it's it's that's part of the process and, and learning mm -hmm. yeah I mean just the fact that you notice that is fantastic like never forget that thank you for right. saying that I think the trickiest thing about learning to meditate is to not know if you're doing it correctly and when you're in there by yourself right it's it's like yeah. what's going on right yeah. <laughs> so being able to I think to talk about that let's say you've never tried it before but you can do it with a friend just talking to each other about it after it happened even if you did it for two or three minutes can be really helpful yeah that debrief 
Oh, that's so amazing. It also helps you have a very soothing voice. You <laughs> <laughs> <We> do. <laughs> so it would guide us through. Oh, man. That's so funny because, uh, you know, I'm trained as a yoga teacher as well. Uh. And we're always trying not to do yoga voice, <laughs> even though it's so soothing. But thank you. Yeah. 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 No, it's great. Absolutely. Well, thank great. you so much, Amy. I mean, this for joining us today. This was yeah. so helpful and, and amazing. And I think we can all kind of take away different um, tools and ideas for for how to help just not only ourselves, but, you know, our, our lymphoma community in dealing with anything that um, in the day to day of their lives, you know, whether it's the diagnosis or going through treatment or um, dealing with their loved ones. Um, hopefully, you know, they find this helpful um, as well. So thank you so much. It's an absolute honor to be of service to this community. And so thank you for giving me the chance to share. Of course. And tune into our next episode, A Clinical Trial Saved My Life, where a peripheral T-cell lymphoma survivor will share his experience of participating in a clinical trial, and he will be joining he will be joined by one of the doctors who worked on the trial that saved his life. And as always, for more information on lymphoma and LRF, you can visit lymphoma.org or contact the LRF helpline at 800-500-9976. Thank you so much.